This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. I mean, you know, you're living in your mother's basement writing a blog on finance. Really, you should stay off the computer, son, and get a job. Seriously. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today is National Tell-A-Joke Day. Well, today's show is no joke because we're talking about real estate. Buying a house, one blogger says they lost a ton of money on their recent purchase. Where did they go wrong? We'll jump into this case study with the man behind Maple Money, Tom Drake. Plus, from Afford Anything, Paula Pant. And finally, from Len Penzo, it's Boris Johnson. No, he's busy trying to become the third prime minister to fire in the last five years. Nah, it's just Len Penzo. And joining us from a group working with MIT's Age Lab to solve the risk that we might outlive our money... We welcome from the Alliance for Lifetime Income, Gene Statler. Of course, we'll magnify someone's money and save time for my amazing trivia. And now, the guy who's always up for a lifetime income stream, if you're buying, it's Joe Salcihai. Well, that's no joke, especially on National Joke Day. If you're up for giving me a lifetime income stream, I'm in. Welcome to Friday on the Stacky Benjamin Show. I am Joe Saul like Doug said, and we've got a crazy good panel today. And let's start off in the desert where my good friend Paula Pant joins me. It is 111 degrees in the desert, which means that I only go out at night now. I'm a legit vampire for the next little while. Do you just take food and set it out on the balcony and wait a few hours and it's delicious? 
All I do is crack eggs on the balcony. I never have to pay for gas. So hashtag frugal hack. Um, you can you can really get by not ever operating your stove. I, I'm sure I've saved at least 17 cents doing this. That's good. And I, compounding over the next 250 years, that's going to be at least a dollar. Well, and think about this. The fact that you don't turn on the stove light, that makes Ooh. it even better. Absolutely. Um, the uh, Because I'm a vampire, the glow from my teeth illuminates everything. I don't even have to use electricity anymore. These whole references, by the way, for people that are new to the show, are uh, courtesy of our old friend Greg McFarlane. I so miss Greg, Paula, when we're having this conversation. <sighs> Greg, I don't know what happened to Greg. He's a... Uh... He's disappeared off into the desert. Well, I'll tell you what. He stayed here a year and a half after he quit blogging, so I thought that was a big win (laughs) for us. Another big win, though, is that deep under California, we've got a line running all the way down to Len Penzo's bunker, and that is a win. And it's 112 degrees in my bunker. The air conditioning's out, and I'm I'm just uh, sweating bullets down here, Joe. You sweating bullets because it's hot or sweating bullets because the honeybee's (laughs) kicking your butt to get it fixed? (laughs) Uh, the bunker, she's, she's not entitled to the bunk. She has, she's not allowed in there. Did you That's say she's bunker. not entitled? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably did. And I'm probably gonna have to answer for that. <laughs> I was going to say, if, if this is like prior shows, she's going to be That's screaming at us couch in the bunker. <laughs> That's exactly, it's exactly right. But you know what, Len? A guy who's got a couch that's north of the border, and we're so excited that he's here with us today to save the show. From Maple Money, it's our good friend Tom Drake. Thanks for having me on. It's about time we got you here, man. So how is life there? Is it Has it made it to 60 degrees yet? Uh, I don't know what that is in Celsius. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> is that hot? In Celsius, we're like 26 degrees, which I have to think is... Above 80 Fahrenheit. Yeah, that's a uh, nice day in, in uh, the Calgary area, right? That's right. Yeah, awesome. And what's funny is I'm headed your way to Calgary, and you very suspiciously decided to not be there when I come to town. Yeah, there's only room for one of us. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be out at FinCon and yeah. everything around that. And, and you're missing out this year. I am, sadly. But that's our secret. I, I don't want to miss FinCon. I also think it has something to do with the fact that you and I are both up for the same Plutus Award, but we'll, we'll leave that uh, for another day. Well, that should obviously just go to me then. Pro- probably, probably should. <laughs> <laughs> How many blogs do you run now, Tom? Like uh, 18, 22? No, much less than I used to. Um, I used to have this thing where it was, I, I just want all these different blogs and slightly different niches within personal finance. But now it's it's pretty much uh, Maple Money in Canada and uh, Get Rich Slowly. I, I partner with JD down, down in the US. So Oh, that so is awesome. That's yeah. where my focus is. Yeah, that's it. And so do you often have to work on your grammar because of all of those concerns with two awesome blogs? Yeah, well, not so much the grammar, it's the spelling. Being Canadian, I actually prefer the U.S. spelling. We get so much stuff like we're we're constantly reading U.S. magazines and books and everything. So I, I, we don't need all the U's in our in our words. I'm I'm fine with U.S. spelling. <laughs> Something that may help you with that, Tom, is Grammarly. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Stacking Benjamins. Grammarly is a communication tool. 
that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free. Imagine that. Mistake-free, clear, and effective. They encourage everybody, even the best students, top professionals, people that run Maple Money or uh, Get Rich Slowly to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish even more. Of their go- You could accomplish even more of your goals if you use Grammarly, Tom. I do use it, and it helps Maple Money out a lot. <laughs> so sometimes I'll purposely just know I'm misspelling a word, but I've got it set to Canadian, and it'll it'll give me that proper for throwing a U in there into words randomly. Wait a minute. Is there a Grammarly toggle? There's a toggle? Yeah, in the count. You can set which language you want, and our language is different than yours. <laughs> so I have to pick English Canada. That's incredible. I didn't know that. The only thing I know about Grammarly is, uh, besides the fact that I use it also, is that every week I get really excited when they send me my uh, how well I'm doing. And I use like more words than 99% of people, and I use them correctly more than about 28% of people <laughs> out there. I don't, I don't know what that means. But we got a great show, guys. We got uh, Tom Drake with us. We got Paula Pant here. We got Len Penzo. We're going to talk about real estate. We're going to answer a magnified money question. So let's get the party started. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our Stacking Benjamin's Headlines. Our headline today comes from a blog that's new to me called Stop Ironing Shirts. What a great name. Paula, you're familiar with these guys a little bit. Yes, absolutely. I'm familiar with them on Twitter. And in fact, on an episode, I forget if it was on an episode of Afford Anything or on an episode of Choose FI, but there was one episode in which myself and the guys from the Choose FI podcast were talking about our motivation for fire. And Jonathan and I specifically agreed that our driving motivation was to not own an iron. And so this brand name of Stop Ironing Shirts resonates very strongly with both of <laughs> us because we've based our entire career around the goal of not owning an iron. From their About Us page, they're a mid-30s couple who achieve financial independence at 34 and they plan on uh, hanging it up at 36. So that's the about page, but we're not going to focus on that. They have a piece where they talk about owning a house. Home ownership cost us $60,000 in a great housing market. Tom, do you, do you mind summarizing a little bit of what this piece is about? From what I can tell, some of it's uh, a little foreign to me because <laughs> I'm in Canada, but uh, I get where they're going with it. The idea that by the time they calculated everything compared to renting, they lost $60,000. We can kind of get into the numbers a little, but I can see uh, I see how their calculations are laid out, and it's interesting. Yeah, let's summarize though exactly what they what they're talking about because people haven't read it. Do you mind summarizing exactly what they're what they're doing here? Well, so the idea is that they had to sell their house, and when doing that, they they calculated all of their costs throughout that time, including the opportunity cost of their their investments that they sold for the down payment, and then they compared that to rent. And in, in the end, uh, they, they realized that in their case, rent would have won out by about $60,000. Yeah. And to give people an idea of where they were, this is the, the, the non-Canadian part, which is they were in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, one of the hotter housing markets in the country. They sold their house as part of their early retirement plan. They sold it for about 50000 more than they purchased it, and they only owned it for 43 months. Then they went through, to Tom's point, they went through and they looked at that and they think they could have done, they could have done better. So lots of costs. They look at the opportunity cost though as $63,000 had they not purchased instead of uh, rented. Len, I, I look at this 
And I think about these people and buying a house. Do you think that this makes a good case for renting versus owning? We've been hearing that a lot in the press lately. Don't buy a house, rent a house. I don't know if this is the definitive example for buying versus owning. I mean, there's a lot of variables here. Um, one of the ones that got me was they only held the house for four years, le- less than four years. A lot of bad timing was in this thing. And the other thing I had an issue with was their opportunity cost calculation. I mean, what they did is they said $63,000 of opportunity costs. And if I understood this correctly, what they said was, well, hey, we used X dollars to put down a down payment. And then over those 43 or 48 months that they own the house, uh, the market went up. And that's the amount of money they would have earned if uh, they, instead of using the, their down payment money, they'd have left that in the market to earn the 63000 And I'm having trouble with them calling them that opportunity cost. It's really just hindsight. Um, because they didn't know what they were going to do. They didn't know for sure that they could have earned $63,000 when they bought that house. But had they so, left the money in the market, that's what they would have had, is what you're saying. Another yes, 63000 they would have yes, had. Yes, that's what they would have earned. But but it's hindsight. So you can't – to me, they're beating themselves up over that. I mean, yes, they're correct. They could have made $63,000 if, mar- you know, if they left the money in the market. But you don't know that at the time. That's more – regret than opportunity cost. So yeah, Tom, you're nodding your head. You agree? Yeah, completely. I was lucky enough to go the other direction. Uh, when we bought our first house was right at the beginning of 2009. Um, so we, we cashed out quite a bit of, of our investments to get our down payment and ended up capturing a lot of money before the drops that would continue to come over 2009. So I get it. Luckily in my case, it's the other direction, but what Len said is exactly right. Like a, it's kind of a crystal ball thing. Same with when they were selling houses. I think they had four or five different houses. They've bought and sold a few times and, and just kind of got on the bad end of the timing a few times. So what I'm hearing from both Len and Tom is that there is some standard deviation around what that market opportunity could have been. And so anytime that you're looking at the opportunity cost of a decision, don't get hung up on the result. Get hung up on what the range of results might have been, right? $63,000 was, in this particular case, the specific result, but the range of possible results, the expected value of what that opportunity cost might have been, risk-adjusted, is uh, a different discussion entirely. Now, that's not to say that buying versus renting, that that's not to make any implication on yeah. that. It's simply to state that the decision-making process is more important than one specific anecdotal result. No, I love that point, Paula, and we'll get into rent versus buy in a little bit, but but there's a lot of decision-making here. And one is taking money from the stock market, which is a long-term asset. I mean, Tom on his end did pretty damn well by taking a long-term asset out at the right end. And we can talk to him in a second about whether he planned that or not because it was up versus somebody who had money in what I think of as the wrong place to take out for a down payment and having to sell when the market's bad like that, you know, even though that might be considered luck, really putting your investments in the right place with the end in mind makes a lot of sense to me. Isn't there a drinking game where every time you say start with the end in mind, people take a shot, Joe? <laughs> there's There's got to be. But doesn't it seem like whether it's on your show or on my show, it always comes back to that. It always mm-hmm. comes back to start with the use of the dollar and walk backwards and you're going to avoid a lot of these mistakes. 
Right. I definitely agree that if a person, and this is sort of general advice for anybody who's listening who is thinking about buying a home in the future, if you are thinking about purchasing a home, don't put your down payment money into equities because equities are volatile and they're appropriate for a 10-year, 15-year, 20-year time horizon. They're not appropriate for wanting to cash out in a couple of years so that you can use that money for the down payment on a home. So here's the question, Tom. Did you take the money out because you were kicking ass on your investments and you're like, it's a great time to pick the fruit, right? Or were you lucky? Just dumb luck. It's my favorite kind. (laughs) Here in Canada, we have a program where we can pull money out of our RRSP tax-free and and then we kind of pay it back over time. Yes, it's pulling it out, but it's, it's almost like a loan to myself. You still have to pay it back in your RRSP. It was just dumb luck. And we bought a house that by the time we bought the house in May of 2009, the real estate prices had gone down. So so we kind of cashed out our investments higher up. It wasn't absolute peak. And we were able to buy at a, as the real estate prices were starting to crash. No, but that's funny you say that because in the United States, you know, the big thing is don't borrow from your 401k, right? Do people say that in Canada? Don't borrow from your RRSP? Well, yeah, in general, normally your only other option is to pull the money out and then you just lose that contribution room. You don't get to put it back or anything. So there is no normal borrowing. This is the only case where you can do it. Uh, Well, this and for education, but yeah, it it was an option there. It was, it was kind of the, the only way to come up with a down payment. Yeah. And so were you planning that all along to put it in the retirement plan and then pull it out for a house or was that retirement money that you decided to pull out early? I think I was planning more as a down payment. I, I wasn't thinking about retirement too much at that point. Uh, I was just putting money in an RSP because that's yeah. what you were supposed to do. <laughs> so yeah. I, I put the money in there and uh, the first real focus I had was the down payment. Len, when we take a look at this uh, buy versus versus rent discussion, you talked about four years, right? You said they only held the house for four years. Why do you see that as a problem in this case? Well, the shorter your time horizon, the more susceptible you are to sudden downturns in the market, right? So there's not a lot of time to recover. And I think she said, she mentioned in here that she moved a lot. I think they, her job took her to various places. So they were moving from place to place to place. So, you know, you kind of know when you're buying the house, I guess you think you'd know that if you're not going to hold the house for a long time, you're taking on a little added risk of a market. If there's a market downturn, that's why the longer you hold the house, the longer you can ride out potential storms that'll decrease your home's value. And if you have to sell, you reduce the risk of you being upside down or, you know, minimizing your returns. Yeah, I like that. Over the long term, real estate does awfully well, but over the short term, like the stock market, probably have more fun going to the roulette wheel and just putting it on there. But Paula, where else do you think four years might have hurt them? Well, I mean, there are high transaction costs when it comes to buying and selling a home. And the longer that you hold a home, the more years that those transaction costs can be amortized through, right? So if you pay these huge transaction costs for the purchase and the sale of your home, but you hold on to that home for 20 years, then divided out on average, you haven't paid a whole lot. If you pay these huge transaction costs and you only hold the home for a short period of time, then those transaction costs have an outsize effect on your financial experience of owning that home. A big part there too, Tom, is just if you look at a mortgage, when she talks about transaction costs, I mean, there's all those fees she talks about, the realtor fees, I mean, just tons of fees on buying and selling a house. But also inside a mortgage, like the amortization table works against you. You you paid a ton of money to the bank. Yeah, but 
if she's moving to another house, I guess you're still just always paying that high interest in, until you get your down payment down. Off of Paula's point, the one option they had here was probably to go for sale by owner. If they had sold the place themselves, that's $45,000 worth of cost that, that could have made a, a big difference. Obviously, it's a lot more work, but I've seen real estate agents collect the full fee and not do anything more than list the place. I, I've had friends that couldn't get them to have an open house or anything like that. So paying that full realtor fee doesn't always provide results. I wanted to get to that next. So I'm glad you brought that up, Tom, because to your point, they, uh, they write, we paid over $40,000 in commissions and every dollar over about a third of that amount was the equivalent of embezzlement after I signed a listing agreement. Here's, here's, here's my question, Len. They received a ton of offers in the first few days. Do you think if they did for sale by owner, to Tom's point, they would have gotten all of those offers in the first few days? You know what? I don't know. There's a trade-off there, right? Maybe the realtor brought in those offers. I don't know. Or maybe, you know, sometimes you jack up the price to cover those realtor fees. So it depends. I guess the answer is depends. That's not satisfying, but it really does just depend. Honestly, I'm anti-realtor. I I think nowadays with the internet, I think it seems very easy, much easier to just than it used to be anyways for sale by owner. So Do do you find that to be the case, Paula? I have never tried selling a home, so I don't know. But I am a licensed real estate agent, so I suppose my answer is biased in multiple forms. I have found that for me, that MLS listing obviously is invaluable, and that's not worth 40000 bucks. I mean, maybe it is. And obviously, there's you can get your house on an MLS without that. Mm-hmm. Yes. But, but so beyond the MLS listing, then you have the realtor brings over a bunch of other realtors right? Has uh, before the house is listed, they generate some hype. I don't know if that happened in this case. The realtors that they know then uh, have some idea of what the hot property is, especially when the market gets hotter. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not sure it's not worth 40,000 bucks, but I'm, but I'm wondering if they're overselling in this piece, the idea that going it alone would have been a much better idea. Tom, what do you think? I'm on the side of going it alone in this case. And again, it is kind of looking backwards even with this too. But if they got a bunch of offers right at the beginning, they could have listed their house for 10000 20000 less to get that interest and still be ahead over paying the real estate fees. Yeah, they would have kept more money themselves. Yeah, you know what I think the short answer is really is, is what's the market? If it's a really hot market, Usually how you, know, you get multiple offers, probably people knocking down your door. You probably don't need the realtors much. If it's a slow market, maybe that's when the realtors really come in and, and earn their money. Well, that's the other thing I see. Now, they say that the uh, realtor did minimal things. But in my case, when I had a realtor, and by the way, my job's not to just to sit here and defend realtors. But I've seen this before as a financial planner. People would go, yeah, you did nothing. I'm like, oh, besides everything, I did nothing. <laughs> yeah. The, the, uh, and then you list off all these things like, well, I, uh, I'm not sure those even mattered. Okay, whatever. But Paul, <laughs> looking at it as an example, the realtor's talking about staging your house, showing you people to stage your house, the, num- the amount of money you get for staging your house, plus uh, how much more quickly it sells. And taking excellent listing photographs, writing an excellent listing, being responsive to all of the inquiries, because there are going to be so many people who email and call and somebody needs to be immediately responsive to that. Being there to converse with the other agent, the buyer, the agent that's representing the buyer, being able to negotiate on all of the 
the many, many contingencies and details that come as part of the offer. When there's an offer made, it's not just price. It's also financing contingency, home sale contingency, appraisal contingency. There are so many steps during the home sale process that need to be managed. And so having a person on your team who can manage all of that and who can negotiate with the other agent, there is value to that. Absolutely. There's another thing here. And the we did a headline recently about the Justice Department looking into real estate firms because of the fact that they collude to work together to keep their commissions high. And by the way, I'm not saying that. I had people write to me telling me that I don't know what I'm talking about. All I said was that the Justice Department says. If the Justice Department says it, okay, that's fine. That's different than me saying it, by the way. Just before you write me a letter about how angry you are, Mr. Realtor. So what I'm not saying here, Len, is that $40,000 in commissions isn't a ripoff. I think it might be a ripoff. However, the realtor usually brings a bunch of stuff to the table that you might not be able to do yourself. That's absolutely correct. It all depends how much effort you you want to put into it. I, I'll go back to my, I've sold one house in my lifetime. I had a realtor at first and he didn't do his job. And so I ended up doing an FSBO and uh, it worked out for me. It took a while, but I got it done. So, but there was work to be done. So um, you know, I'm not saying it's easy, but if you're looking to save money, you can save a significant amount of change. $40,000 is significant. Yeah, Tom, I think you got to learn how to take some good pictures, stage your house. Like maybe if you do a bunch of homework ahead of time, maybe it's worth it. Well, like Len said, it comes down to having the internet nowadays. And, and that doesn't just mean how to get it listed, but I'm sure there's tons of information out there about how to get the right kind of pictures, how to stage your house. I do think it's sort of the biggest issue in these numbers. And I've used a real estate agent. It's, <laughs> I can't say I haven't used it, but um, I think this way just works out. Like I do appreciate that they broke this down though, because a lot of people would have looked at these, their sale and they just would have said, I made $50,000. Yeah. Cha-ching. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Nobody looks backwards. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Paula, does this idea of a realtor, does that just come down to time versus money? Well, it's time, money, and knowledge. If you think of those as the three aspects of a triangle, because certainly if you decide to sell a home uh, for sale by owner, FSBO, that's not money for nothing. That's actual work that you have to do. And that time has to come from somewhere. So there's going to be an opportunity cost to that time. The other consideration is money. And this could go both ways. Sure, you may save on the commission from not paying a real estate agent, but you might not ask for as high of an asking price. You might not reduce the asking price when circumstances warrant in a timely manner. You might not appropriately negotiate on some of the contingencies. And so uh, the money angle can go either way because we don't want to over-focus on just one line item, which is the commission, at the expense of other line items that go into that final number. And then, of course, knowledge closely ties in with that money piece. Do you have sufficient knowledge to be able to negotiate about various contingencies? Do you have sufficient knowledge to be able to manage your own purchase and sale agreement? Is that your big takeaway here? Is The takeaway is think in a more nuanced way about the value that an agent brings? No, just big takeaway from the piece in, gen in general. Well, the other takeaway to what Tom said is I really like that Stop Ironing Shirts, this, this blogger, has 
looked at their home sale, not just based on the cash that they received at the closing table, but in the context of opportunity cost. And I think that that's a great framework for evaluating any decision that you've made. Len, another takeaway? To Paula's point, I'm going to say when you're looking at opportunity cost, that's for looking forward, not looking backwards. So I think that's when that really comes in more importantly. Let me bring up one more point about real estate agents. You know, there's another alternative and it's called getting a real estate attorney to look over your paperwork and they can do that for a flat fee and it would be a small fraction. So you do the legwork, get somebody to bite and take the hook and buy your house. The paperwork, you can get a real estate attorney and they'll do it. They'll do the paperwork for a fraction of, of what a real estate agent will do. I love having that person at the very least, Len, in your corner because they've looked at this and and we've all, I mean, if you bought a house, you know how the stack of paperwork and being able to negotiate all that paperwork on your own is a nightmare. Yep. Yeah. Tom, you're the guest here. Uh, last word on takeaway from this piece. We, we kind of touched on it before. They shouldn't beat themselves up over this. It's kind of not just the opportunity cost, but also the the way the market went, the fact that, that they had to sell at certain times uh, through the various sales. Like these are all just things that didn't go their way, but you can only know this stuff looking back. Like I, I think Bitcoin's a terrible investment, but if I had known five years ago, I, I would have bought some, right? Like, <laughs> so you just can't tell some of these things. Gene Statler is on my dad's shortwave. Normally at this point in the show, we have a Friday fintech segment. I'll tell you, there's a lot of technology going on though in the world of lifetime income. A lot of misinformation, a lot of bad actors, a lot of problems in that area. And so a group called the Alliance for Lifetime Income was formed and is working, and I think this is phenomenal, with the MIT Age Lab. Nobody smarter than the people at MIT to talk about this idea of longevity and solving the issue of outliving your money. Gene Statler is the executive director of the Alliance for Lifetime Income. Let's talk about the challenge of outliving your money and what the Alliance is doing behind the scenes working on this area of your financial plan. Let's say hello to Gene Statler. And on my dad's shortwave from the Alliance for Lifetime Income, we welcome Gene Statler. How are you, Gene? I'm doing great. How are you, Joe? Well, I'm glad now that I'm here with you. I want to ask first, this mission of lifetime income, I want to ask about your personal experience. How did you come to this mission? Actually, just lucky, I guess. We had 24 companies formed the Alliance for Lifetime Income and selected me to be their executive director and try to put together an education and awareness program about those 10,000 people who are reaching 65 every day and thinking about what they should do after that and in their next life, if, if you want to call it that, in terms of when they quit getting a paycheck and, and what are the things they can do to uh, to live life to its fullest, but then how can they afford it? And what happens if they live beyond their savings? So it all came together, kind of this perfect storm to say, we're perfectly set to um, get this education and awareness campaign out to those people every day who are 
reaching that magical age. I've got so many questions about that, but one more question about just you personally <laughs> is, did you really worry about making sure you had enough for the rest of your life before you became a, 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 the head of the Alliance? I'm glad you asked me about my personal experience. The answer is no. And the answer is, and now I think about it and worry about it every day because I was probably the first one that was educated. I'm 64 years old, had just been saving money as fast as I could, still work, obviously, full time. And I've got millennial children who are living their dream. And their dreams are music, acting, and preschool teachers. <laughs> now, do you think any the three of those are going to be able to support me and my dotage <laughs> and, uh, when I quit getting a paycheck? <laughs> obviously not. And I was like, yikes. And then suddenly I thought, well, my mother lived to be 95. My father lived to be 89. I'm definitely on the track to at least be 95 or so. So I better figure out what my income needs are. And I got to figure out how to make the savings and the 401ks and IRAs and things that I've put together last through that. So I actually did purchase an annuity. Well, and I want to get to this because of the fact that it's, this seems to be an issue, Gene, as you know, that certified financial planners are talking about this idea of longevity that I don't see enough in the non-professional media. You talk about your parents living, you know, into their nineties. Uh, you look at if somebody's born in the year 2000 today, I think Gail Sheehy did some research here where those people could live to be 130 years old. We're seeing these numbers all the time. Why don't we, why don't we see that more? Well, I think you're going to see it more and more because you have people reaching 65 years old and the peak of that, the boomers, the peak of that is will be in 2024. And I think as people actually get into their, well, I'm not going to, I want to actually quit my job, do something that I love, figure out what, uh, you know, my spouse and I can do. And that's when it hits you. And the thing is, they're not planning ahead. They're not thinking, I think the key thing that we're trying to get people to do is let's just start at the beginning. What do you think your income needs are when you quit getting a regular paycheck at whatever work you have and that you're going to either end the work or they're going to force you to retire? Then go back and talk to your financial advisor or your the person who's actually running your the plan for you at your place of work. And let's figure out how to uh, to think about that. But it is, it's amazing that we haven't, as boomers, we've just been living life the way that, you know, just to its fullest and just kind of, it'll all work out. And what we're seeing certainly in the, in the people that we're coming across at the different events that we're sponsoring is people going, I'm so glad you're here because I do need to think about it, but I just really haven't had time. It's, it's amazing because you think about how many years it could be. I mean, if somebody lives well past a hundred years old, or if, if Gail's right, these numbers that I mentioned earlier, you could live 50, 60 years during your retirement years, Gene. I'm sure you have a lot of statistics about how ill-prepared people are for their retirement years. Yes, actually we do. And, and, you know, it's interesting. We just completed and, and we'll release it probably, I think it's within the next two weeks, our second annual protected lifetime income index uh, survey, which shows that people really are optimistic and looking forward to retirement. And then a large percentage, 60, 70%, 75% looking forward to it. And then the second question gets to, but the anxiety sets in and that's even a larger percentage of how am I going to afford it? 
And where does that come down? Or can you tell us yet? Yeah, where it comes down is is that they, what are the steps I need to take yeah. in order to think about this and to prepare for it? And so what we're trying to get people to do is move up that thought process and to, to not let it hit you when you're 65. Why don't, why don't you think about it when you're 45 sure. and 55? And what you're seeing is that what we do see a lot of data about is millennials in particular who are worried about it, who are thinking about it, because the fact is, is that they don't want to work to be till they're 65. They actually want to retire sooner. They want to actually, that's when they want to pursue their, their dreams. And so those, those Gen Xers in particular are um, really thinking about it a lot sooner than boomers uh, as a generation. I was uh, having a discussion with Matt Carey, uh, who you and I know from Blueprint right. Income, and he was talking about the fact that you talk to somebody in the public about a lifetime income stream they cannot live fantastic conversation. You talk to somebody about a pension that as people move from company to company, it's a pension that can follow you around. But you say the word annuity that you mentioned earlier and people go, uh, no, thanks. Not for me. Where is that disconnect coming from, Gene? I think it's really lack of understanding truly what an annuity is. But I also think that there were some good days, salad days, as they say, uh, where annuities were really very popular. And then sometime, I think what we're seeing is sometime in the um, early 2000s and up through maybe 2013, there were some, I'd call them shady kind of sales practices and misinformation out there about what an annuity is and how long it takes for them to mature and you had some people out there giving the whole industry a bad name. And I think that's exactly why the alliance was set up, is really to get it kind of back to the middle and really say, this is actually a viable product for your investment portfolio, whatever you want to do with your 401k IRA or or pension or employer plan. But this should be a part of it. And here are the basic facts about it. And so we're trying to get it back to center and talking about principles that we live by, uh, our member companies live by in terms of transparency, simplicity. Part of the thing is in terms of the misunderstanding is they become so complex. When you start adding a writer for this and a writer for that and, and all these different things that actually the insurance company and the financial advisor or whomever's giving you this advice, it's almost becoming too complex for them to really understand when you can get the money, how much money you get, can you get out of it. And so I think one of the things that we have to think more seriously about is how do you really frame this in a more simplistic or simple way that's more transparent. And that's why we have a number of questions, for example, on our website that would say, if you're thinking about it, here are the questions you really should ask as a consumer to your financial advisor or your insurance agent who's selling you this in terms of what the differences are, what's good for me, if it's a certain product, what's the annual expense charge, um, where are my associated risks if I purchase this product, and are there surrender charges? You know, there's like eight or nine or ten questions that are really would get you the basic information you need so it's a decision that you can make because I think at the end of the day, we, what we want is certainly access to a variety of products, and, and we want the consumer to have the choice. 
Yeah, I love in their best interest. Yeah, I think all uh, all certified financial planners are looking at this longevity issue. I also want to emphasize something else I know here, Gene, is that you're working with some of the smartest people in the world on this. Tell me about some of the collaboration you've done with professors at places like MIT of all places. I mean, it, I, I don't think it gets smarter than MIT. <laughs> That's right. Um, certainly smarter than me, but I would say uh, what's interesting about the MIT Age Lab and, and Joe Coughlin and his group is is their um, their study doing for us on longevity and about how people uh, think about. They're calling it your next phase of life. It could be eight thousand days, right? You're talking about the length of time, and we do have. It, it's interesting because when we started out about a year and a half ago as this organization, the first thing we wanted to do for credibility was really talk to and get on board some of the academics who are writing about it. MIT being the first one, and Joe Coughlin, and without exception, every single one that I, you know, we did a quick search on who's writing about this. When we did approach them about would you be interested in collaborating with the Alliance for Lifetime Income and trying to solve this societal crisis and income crisis um, in retirement, and would you be willing to work with us? And without exception, they, they said, absolutely, but we're going to do it in an objective way. We're going to do it you know, with the right kind of research. We were like, that's great. And no one said, I don't like annuities. I don't like the fact that there is this guaranteed income or misconception they basically said, we do need to work with you and you need, and the industry really needs to adopt some of the recommendations that we have. And you saw that probably at the, at the conference May 15th at MIT, where the academics, people from Johns Hopkins and, and Wharton and Stanford and Northwestern University are really helping us try to solve this income gap issue and how, you know, what should annuities provide and, and what shouldn't they provide and should they be simpler and more transparent? Yeah, I love seeing. So we are working with some of the smartest people and we actually <laughs> formed an institute within the alliance where we're going to really look at what are the barriers both inside the industry and the barriers outside by consumers and financial advisors and address those barriers that keep people from at least getting the choice of an annuity or not. And, you know, what are the things we need to fix and what are the things that we need to help the consumer understand to include them in plans, employer plans and things like that. Well, Gene, I love seeing the work that you guys are doing on fixing the retirement income crisis. And I mean, we see it in the media all the time that this is only going to get worse before it gets better. So thank you for spending a few minutes with us to explain all the things you guys are doing at the Alliance for Lifetime Income. Thanks, Joe. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. And on Elvis Memorial Day, I'm sure you can't help falling in love with today's trivia question. I think you'll have some burning love for this one. How much did Elvis's estate earn in 2016? I'll have the answer for all of you hound dogs in just a moment. It doesn't get any better. I guess I should say it doesn't get any worse. I don't know. Spoiler, better, worse. Who knows? Uh, Tom, we explained the convoluted uh, rules to this here contest to you backstage. You said that you couldn't believe we were telling the results. <laughs> like we're actually we're actually interested in who's winning. 
going on, but we totally are. You are playing on behalf of OG and you have seven because OG beat our guest last week, Shauna, who's playing on behalf of Len. Len has nine. Paula has seven. That means Paula, you get to decide first because OG just moved up to tie you. Would you like to go first in the middle or last? Why, that's an excellent question, Joe. And after careful contemplation, I have decided that I would like to guess last place. <laughs> that is so shocking. Amazing. And Tom, you get to guess if you want to go in the middle or first. Definitely the middle. Yeah, huh? Who knew? <laughs> and so that means, Len, it's up to you, man. Elvis is a state still making money on different licenses and things that he has. In 2016, how much money did the estate bring home? 2016, eh? There's been a couple years. I think he's been like the biggest earning entertainer today. So I know it's a big number. Uh, and what do entertainers earn? Any? I mean, the big ones. I'm sure they earn nine figures on a good day. You know, really good gear. I'm going to say, uh, let's go with, $125 million. $125 million. Tom, what do you think? Oh, I wanted to go a lot higher than that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to go with $300 million. $300 million, giving Paula a big, big difference between the two. I like that. You get to decide, Paula. What do you want to do with that? Well, clearly, oh, I've no. got to oh, guess. No. <laughs> <laughs> One hundred and twenty-five million and one dollar. <laughs> Thanks, Paula. <laughs> Anytime, Len. Oh, I thought you were going to go through your you 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 decided not to go through your three choices this show. She's like, I'll cut to I the chase. The pain in your face, Joe, and I decided to spare you. My compassionate soul wins out. I thought you were going to tell us your three choices, which might be either it's below one twenty-five, it's between one twenty-five to three hundred. Or it's exactly. above 300. I was, I was waiting for her to ask, who's Elvis? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Paul is furiously on Wikipedia. <laughs> yes. You familiar with Elvis? What's your favorite Elvis song, Paula? Oh, oh, you're asking me to name an Elvis song. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't know I'd have to study for this. Um, he did Doug a bunch just, of... Doug just reeled off about five of them. He did. He <laughs> various rock and roll songs. Oh boy. That were popular in the era. Oh boy. Well, we'd love to tell you what an Elvis song was. We'd also love to tell you the answer to this question, but like any responsible podcast, we're going to make you wait for a minute. So we'll have that in just a second. As I mentioned earlier, thanks to Grammarly for supporting our podcast. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people like me improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Grammarly encourages everybody, including, of course, the best students and the top professionals to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish even more of their goals. You can go much faster, guys, with Grammarly because you don't have to worry as much about the carnage being left behind your writing. You know how you'll get an email from some people sometimes, people you thought were smart, and they misspell some pretty easy words or they have horrible sentence construction. I remember when I was with American Express, we had a vice president that would send out emails and would, wouldn't have anybody check them. And it was funny because obviously this is way before Grammarly existed back in the old days. And it made him look horrible. 
And I remember all the talk that went on behind his back. Uh, and frankly, just the idea that he wouldn't have somebody check it. So I know we live in a much busier world now. You don't have to have somebody check it. You've got Grammarly there to check it. It's available on multiple browsers, Chrome, Firefox, Safari, Edge, platforms like iOS, Android, Windows, Mac. Their free product reviews critical spelling and grammar. Grammarly Premium, though, looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions. So whether it's a business proposal, academic essay, casual blog post, script for a podcast about money, whatever it might be, Grammarly is there. Accomplish your goals with help from Grammarly. You can stop making email typos on your phone, close more deals at work this year with your emails, or polish your resume to get that new job. Here's the best part. If you go to Grammarly.com forward slash SB, you know what's going to happen. You're going to get 20% off your Grammarly premium account today. That's Grammarly.com forward slash SB for 20% off your Grammarly premium account. Len, as long as it comes in exactly $125 million, you're good. How are you feeling? Hold on. I've got it all the way up to $125,999. No, I got a 99 cent spread, don't I? I don't know. <laughs> 99 cent spread. <laughs> she left that hard left. on me. That would be great. $125 million and 67 cents. Yes, that's right. So there's still hope. That would be great. And Tom, you got 300 million. You got everything north of 300 million. That's got to feel good. It feels really good because in my head, if I had to go first, I was going to say 500 million. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel like I'm being conservative at 300. You got a nice number. And Paula, you've got the middle ground there. Yeah, I, I'm starting to second guess myself a little bit, but we will find out in a matter of seconds. We will. And you're starting to second guess my pick. <laughs> <laughs> How could you second guess Len's pick? Because Len's got the magic eight ball. Who he's relying on. Well, for that's his, true. Yes. All right, Doug, you've got it from here. What's our answer? Welcome back, trivia fans. I'm going to break this trivia answer out of jailhouse rock jail right now before you get all moody blue on me. Don't want you getting all suspicious minds either. You know, I love you all tender. Here was the question. How much did Elvis's estate earn in 2016? The answer? If you said anything over a humble $27 million, book yourself a stay at the Heartbreak Hotel because you'd be wrong. Uh-huh. See ya! I meant Canadian dollars. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, judge, uh, what is it? Is that 37 cents you bid then? <laughs> I think you're good. Everybody's over. No winner, except for uh, Paula, who may or may not have learned uh, 16 new Elvis songs just through Doug's creative. I, I can name one now. Love Me Tender Love me is t- an Elvis song. <laughs> that is. But do you even know what that song is? Or are you just kind of parroting no, what sure. Doug said? I've heard many Elvis songs, that one included. That one's I nice. can yes. I can definitively say that. We'll take the heat off you, Paula, and let's uh, take out the magnifying glass instead and help somebody do better with their money. Today's hotline call comes to you courtesy of magnifymoney.com. When you head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash magnify money, you know what you find, Tom? What do you find? You find all those financial products you use every day, nowhere near best in class. Over 92% of the products available online all ranked at Magnify Money. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Magnify Money for more. In Canada, it might be something a little different, but in the U.S., it's Magnify Money. Today, we're going to Magnify Kurt's money. Say hi, Kurt. 
Hey, Joe and OG. I have a question that only two dudes living in their mom's basement can answer. I have a college reimbursement plan set up with my employer. I get a lump sum of money each year based on my college expenses. This money is on a three-year vesting schedule that if I leave my job, which I'm not planning on doing, or if I'm terminated, I'm responsible for paying back the full amount. I currently have the money sitting in a high-yield savings account. Some options I have at hand are, one, keep the money in the savings account until the three-year vesting schedule is up and decide from there. Number two, take the money now and apply it towards student loans. I do have some scholarships coming in, which will help offset the college costs. Number three, take the money out now and pay off some minor debts, like a small car loan. This will allow me to have better cash flow. Number four, keep the money in a high-yield savings account. Focus on paying down student loans now, and I'll have an additional cash stack. And number five, take the money to the local casino and spoil myself for all the hard work that I've done. What do you guys think? If I don't like your answer, I'm just going to ask Doug anyway. Thanks for everything that you do. And also, please let Gertrude know that when she sends me the link for my free shirt, I'm a 1X. There there you go. That's how you do it, stackers. Kurt nails. Even the East German judge, Paula, gave Kurt a 10. Oh, absolutely. Tens all around. Yes. And if it were Doug, by the way, Kurt, just to tell you ahead of time, he'd take the money to the casino. So we probably don't want that one. But man, these are these are four wild choices. Uh, Tom is the guest. What are you thinking, man? What do you do? He didn't get into the numbers, but I, I really like going with numbers. I, I got to assume that the car loan's probably the, the highest interest. So personally, I'd take uh, paying off a high interest rate over certainly keeping it in a savings account for a less lesser percentage. Well, but here's the problem is that if he somehow gets released in the next three years, he's going to pay that money back. Does he leave it there for three years and then pay the car or does he take the risk that his employer is going to leave him there, keep him there, which he thinks is going to happen? I mean, does he take that risk or not? I'd take the risk personally. He mentioned it wasn't just a car loan and some other debts. So if some other debts means like credit card debt or anything like that, then then you're better off paying it off now. And if you were, yeah, certainly in a situation where all of a sudden you lose your job, yeah, you've got to you've got to borrow that money back again. But you're no worse off than maybe this is a two year span or something like that that you've had no debt. Yeah, yeah, that's a good. I hadn't thought about that. If pays it off, he has to pay it back. He's back in the same debt he was in before, just to his company instead. As long as he has access to that, it's not That's like right, I, yeah. I'm not trying to say that a, a credit line is an emergency fund, <laughs> but right. if you're, if you're already using that debt, it seems like getting rid of that's the best player to me. Len, what do you Although think? Would you, would you be able to get that credit line if you'd lost your job? Good point. Yeah. But- yeah. No, that's what I mean. You'd, if that's current debt he already has, like if it's a credit line that, that he already has and he pays it off, it would still be available to him. Len, what do you think? Do you agree with Tom? I don't know. I mean, I get Tom's logic, but I'm Mr. Risk. I know you think you're not going to get laid off or what have you, but things do happen. Uh, what's the spread between your high yield savings account and the extra, you know, return you'd get by paying off that, that loan of, you know, what's an auto loan? Worst case these days, I don't know, 5% maybe to, so I don't know, two and a half percent extra. Is that worth the risk? I don't know. I like Tom's answer, but uh, frankly, I'd probably just keep it in a high yield 2.4%. Maybe maybe if you want to take a little bit of risk, put that money in CDs and ladder it so you get a little bit more, but uh, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And in a lot of markets lately, as you know, Len, laddering CDs not paying higher. I mean, it it's frustrating kind yeah. of trying to bump that up. Paula, where do you stand here? It's a, This is a tough one. I see the logic in Tom's answer, but I'm a big proponent of keep savings around that you can use in an emergency and train yourself behaviorally to not view debt as something that you rely on in the event of a cash crunch. So from a, a behavioral and psychological perspective, I say keep savings around, keep it in cash, and don't worry about trying to over-optimize the, uh, the money that it's making. Just know that you've got a cash cushion that you can fall back on so that in the event that the rest of your life goes awry, you've got the cash to bail you out. At the most here, for me to weigh in, I might do a 50-50 strategy. And once again, I think numbers really apply here. I mean, like Mm -hmm. multiple people have said, if we knew the amounts of these, it would really help. But if there's a couple small debts he could pay off quickly and then use that to rebuild that position in high yield so we avoid some of that that interest, Mm -hmm. I think that might be a midway between what uh, Paula, you and Len are saying and what Tom's saying, because I agree with all these positions. Like maybe there is a middle ground here. Tom, you're nodding your head. Yeah, it's a good idea. You probably have the best answer because <laughs> uh, if you can pay that debt off and then use the fact that you're no longer paying interest on it to start building up an emergency fund, then then you'd kind of get the best of both. Yeah, and how, hopefully you can get that up to the point where the three years doesn't matter in a hurry, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 in case you do lose your job. Right. Tough place, Kurt, but thanks for the question. And we will pass on to Gertrude uh, what size you are. <laughs> 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 Gertrude loves that, although it really doesn't matter, but she may high five you. That would be good. If you've got a question for the show, head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash voicemail and uh, you can uh, stick the landing as well, like Kurt did. Nice job, man. All right, that's going to do it for today. We're going to have our guest of honor go last. Uh, let's talk to Mr. Penzo here. What's happening at the Persistent Itch? I, I don't know how many people know I, I we're was kidding. Bullets. I thought you were going to go to Paula first. <laughs> I don't know how many people know we're. Her. I don't yeah. know how many people know we're kidding about the persistent itch anymore, though. That's a long-running joke. What's happening at lempenzo.com? I've got a piece on birth order and how it influences financial behavior. Stop on by, and uh, you can read up all about that. You stop having kids just before the bad one. <laughs> Well, I don't, I'm not going to give it away. Maybe the first one's the, the one that's Maybe. the bad one. Then you're really, you're done. Well, considering, considering I <laughs> was, I guess it only gets better from there. Right. Considering I was the first one, probably not. <laughs> probably. We're, we're usually, I think eldest are probably the best. Paula, were you the oldest? Uh, I'm the only child. You were the only so, child. So there you go. So my position is best is guaranteed. <laughs> there it is. Your position <laughs> is worse, by the way, is guaranteed as well. <laughs> I'm their favorite and their least favorite. (laughs) Oh, damn it. What's going on at Afford Anything? On the Afford Anything podcast, Cameron Huddleston joins us. She's a writer for Kiplinger Personal Finance, and she wrote a book called Mom and Dad, We Need to Talk. It's all about how to converse with your parents or step-parents about end-of-life financial issues. A very important conversation, one that is not discussed enough. Cameron gives a lot of great tips and advice for how to have this difficult but important conversation with your parents. So tune into the Afford Anything podcast to learn all about how to talk with your parents about financial end-of-life issues. Also, coming up very, very soon, we have an interview with Mark Manson on the Afford Anything podcast. So... 
Join us for that one. That's going to be a fun one. Mark Manson, that's going to be a great conversation. Oh, I I love Mark Manson. I've been following his work for years. So he's the author of The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Bleep. Yes. And he just wrote a new book that's called Everything is Bleeped. And uh, he's he's one of, I think, the leading thinkers on personal development, the state of the world. So we have a great time. We're uh, We're going to talk all about how to navigate in this crazy world that we all live in. I want to go back to Cameron Huddleston, though. Like, does she have a chapter on how to weasel your mom out of more money, even though you're 51? <laughs> Why, Joe? Asking for personal experience? No, a friend wanted to know. Really? Really? Just, uh, well, I mean, I think the fact that your mom is letting you podcast out of her basement is pretty generous, given that you are 51. That is a, that's a great point. Look at the time. We got to keep moving. Uh, Tom Drake... <laughs> What's happening at Maple Money Man? Thanks, by the way, for hanging out with us. It's been so fun. And by the way, overdue as well. Oh, it's been great being on. Uh, so Maple Money is Canada's largest independent personal finance blog. And we've got a podcast for just over a year now called Maple Money Show. So if you're if you're a Canadian listening to Stacking Benjamin, you should really head on over to <laughs> the Maple Money Show. Yes. So everything's pre-translated for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. We, we talk about those RSPs and all that. That's right. So is, is the perfect American question, because you've been with us before when we've done these horrible Canadian terms and you've seen how bad Americans are at Canadian terms, is the next best question for you. So what does the maple stand for in maple money? I have so many people ask me. Do you if really? It's, if it's because our money smells like maple syrup. Are you kidding a, me? It, it was the thing going around. You can Google it. There was this sort of... Uh, hoax going around. I, I think it, I call it a hoax. Some people swear it's true, but uh, when our new bills came out, yeah. they purposely smelt like maple syrup. So people ask if that's why I named it, but it, it was not. It was just to show Canada. And huh. money. I'm so sorry. Everybody, everybody knows Canadian money smells like poutine. <laughs> <laughs> Paul is laughing, but she has no idea what poutine is. <laughs> It's a food. It's a food. I know it's a food. I was about to follow up with, we all know it smells like hockey stick, but then I, you know, not sure if hockey stick has a smell. I don't know. Hockey bags do. The bag that you put all the equipment in, it smells like muscled sweat. I was going to say, it smells like teen spirit. Yeah, right. (laughs) Not in a good way. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Uh, We'll have links to everybody on our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from our roundtable gang. If you're buying a house, it only makes sense as a long-term prospect. If it's a house you're going to live in, it's as much of a lifestyle decision as a finance one. Don't overdo your mortgage or you might wreck other areas of your life too. Second, take some advice from Gene Statler. Remember that products are tools and people who sell products will tell you how much they love them while people who don't sell them will focus on why you shouldn't buy. However, any fiduciary will tell you that there's a big problem and that's longevity. How are you going to solve it? Ask the question, then find the right tool. But the big lesson? Oh boy, it's always Elvis Appreciation Day here at Joe's mom's house. She's all shook up, man, and can't stop falling in love with these old Elvis movies. Somebody help us all! Thanks to Tom Drake from Maple Money for joining us. You'll find the Maple Money Podcast wherever you're listening to this podcast. 
And thanks to Gene Statler from the Alliance for Lifetime Income for joining us. You'll find more on the Alliance at allianceforlifetimeincome.org. Paula Pant appears courtesy of AffordAnything.com and the Afford Anything podcast. Len Penzo appears courtesy of LenPenzo.com and ThePersistentItch.com. This show was created by Joe Salcihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I really thought doing these credits completely naked would have been a lot more fun than it actually was. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. Welcome to the after show, the part of the show that doesn't exist. Paula, we were messing around with uh, you and Elvis earlier in the show, but what do you know about Elvis? Tell tell us your everything I know about Elvis. Yeah, encyclopedic knowledge. Was a famous performer from the 1950s. He oh, he did songs like "All Shook Up" and "Love Me Tender" and some various (laughs) other ones. He uh, was considered to be a little risque for his time in that he would like shake his hips on stage. That was quite a a big thing back then. He often wore all white, uh, typically all white ensembles with the front shirt a little bit unbuttoned. Um, So he was a bit of a heartthrob for his era. He died young. And that's what I know about Elvis. Being from Memphis, by the way, he was one of the first white entertainers to really take uh, a lot of the the Memphis blues music that was largely the African-American culture in the area and kind of infuse it. And by the way, if you listen to Elvis today, you, you really don't hear that, right? There's entertainers today that do it much more succinctly. But at the time, it was scandalous. Len, you were like 25 when Elvis was young, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's no. like a let's like a couple no. years older than me, so I like throwing the old guy. I, I, I actually I was a kid when he died, so yes. I was still a kid. Yeah, me too. Yes. Yeah. So But I do I do remember I do you know, Paula described the 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 Elvis I remember, the guy in the white jumpsuit with the you know, the hunk of hunk of burn and love Elvis, you know. Yeah. Which just so happens to be my favorite Elvis. 
it's kind of the sad Elvis, but I, I like that uh, Elvis. Why do you like that? Just because you knew that Elvis best? Well, it's such a showman, you know, it's like so Vegasy, yeah, kitschy. It's just, I don't know. It's just something cool about it. I love it. Yeah. Tom, how about you? You remember Elvis from being a kid? I was alive for about a month when, when Elvis died. So uh, I didn't get to know him that well. Was that the best month um, of your life? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, if I had to pick, I'm an early Elvis guy because I, I did like the idea that that he was going on these shows and and really kind of these TV shows and, and shaking things up literally, but uh, <laughs> just 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 something new and and kind of shocking at the time. Yeah, I'm an early Elvis guy too. I thought he was innovative then, and at the end, it just seemed like he was so baked on drugs, man. I think most of America is too. Remember, I don't know if you. I, I'm sure Paula doesn't. She's too young to remember, and I know. Tom wouldn't know, but do you remember the postal service had a contest? They, they put out a, an Elvis stamp and they let America vote on which would it be the old, you know, oh, did the, they really, the kitschy, the kitschy, you know, late stage Elvis or the young, you know, hound dog Elvis. Yes. And the hound dog Elvis won by a landslide. Yeah. You know that, uh, Willie Nelson went on, uh, Johnny Carson one night and told like the world's worst, Elvis joke. And it was one of these things that, uh, he totally surprised Johnny Carson. People don't know Johnny Carson. He did the tonight show way before Jimmy Fallon and before, and before, uh, Jay Leno. Paula, do you know who Johnny Carson is? I have heard of Johnny Carson. I knew he was the predecessor to Jay Leno and David Letterman. And if I've you, never seen any of his shows. If you go back and watch old videos, people would say stuff to Johnny that he didn't expect, or at least you thought he didn't expect it. And he'd get this great look in his eye. Like, I can't believe you just said that on TV. So uh, without regard to whether this is a good joke or bad joke, this was what Willie Nelson said to Johnny Carson. And I'll ask Len this. Len, do you know what, uh, you know what Elvis's last words were? No, what were Elvis's last words? Corn? Also, we have an interview with Mark Manson on the Afford Anything podcast. Join us for that one. That's going to be a fun one. Bam. Charles Cousin? No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say that too. Something like that. But I just... <laughs> Steve, take that out. Steve, take it out. He's a, uh, he's a famous personal development uh, yes. thinker. Yes, I know. Charles? I know. We're... <laughs> All right. Steve, take that out. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Uh, we'll have links to everybody on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. Paul, Paul, where the f*** did that come from? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Three, two, one. Doug, take it from here, man. What should we have learned today? Where the hell did Paul come from? Paul. <laughs> Doing the show for eight years, I'm like, Paul. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members 
and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.